Dr. Peter Moore, and uh, he is going to introduce our speaker this evening. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for welcoming us here tonight for our uh, lecture series that we have each January. Uh, just for those of you who know nothing about the Anglican Leadership Institute, it was the product of Bishop Mark Lawrence's vision five years ago when he said, let's use the resources of Charleston, the financial, the ministry resources, the churches, and so on, to encourage and challenge the Anglican Church worldwide and to help encourage leadership, godly servant leadership throughout the Anglican Communion by bringing people here for three weeks, a whole three weeks, twice a year. So we have one institute here in January, one institute elsewhere uh, where it's a little cooler in September than here. And uh, we have had a wonderful time. We're meeting on the Isle of Palms and um, it's going extremely well. And we use so many wonderful resources of this greater community uh, as part of our teaching on servant leadership. Uh, <clears throat> I want to introduce our speaker who is part of our institute. He has come to us from Australia. You'll notice his accent um, shortly. And um, he is the Reverend Dr. John P. Dixon, who comes from Sydney, Australia. Um, he's married to Elizabeth. They have three grown children. And he is the rector of St. Andrew's Church, Roseville, which is an, a suburb, I believe, of Sydney. But in addition to that, he is an academic who has been set free by his parish to do this sort of thing, not just here, but in all parts of the world, and to produce resources for, especially for skeptics and seekers who are troubled by questions that grow to the heart of the faith. His great gifting is to speak the gospel into the skeptical world and to show how Christians can do that thoughtfully, generously, and uh, with conviction and courage. And so he has produced uh, DVDs, and I draw your attention to some of the material out on the table there. He's produced a series of thing called The Christ Files, which gives you the historical background to the Gospels. Fascinating series. We have only a limited number of them, but they are for sale outside. And um, this is how I got introduced to him, by listening to these and being fascinated by John taking us all over the world, giving us the biblical historical background to the creation of um, the, the New Testament picture of Jesus. And we also have some of his books, particularly his Doubter's Guides. He written, he's written books called Doubter's Guide to the Bible, to Jesus. They are on sale on the table there as well, and I commend them to you highly. I have not read anything as good as those that try to put, put one's mind in the mind of the non-believer, and then how to relate to that mind in a way that is gracious and yet um, faithful to the scriptures. So he's an academic, he's an author, he's prolific, uh, he's a great speaker. Will you please welcome Dr. John Dixon. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, people had warned me about Southern hospitality. Uh, I, I didn't know that it actually extended to exaggeration. Uh, but uh, thank you. I, I've been incredibly well uh, embraced by everyone uh, around town and uh, in the churches I've been to. Uh, it's just a privilege, a real privilege. And uh, my brothers and sister uh, in the Anglican Leadership Institute uh, this week has just been great fun hanging out together and, uh, and uh, discussing these important things. Uh, Jeff, thank you for, where, where's Jeff gone? Uh, Jeff at the back, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me on Sunday and, and again today, just a real privilege. And my oh my, uh, a thoroughly believing, passionate, liturgical church is just so exciting to me, especially as a Sydney Anglican, where we don't get to dress up very much at all. Bishop Mark, thank you for having me uh, on your turf. It's a, a privilege to be here. Well, I want to talk about uh, Jesus, uh, every Christian's favorite subject, and certainly my favorite subject. And I put it to you that the figure of Jesus ought to be of importance uh, both to the believer and the skeptic. 
uh, if only for the skeptic, because Jesus had such a massive influence on Western culture. Um, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say, if you haven't read a gospel and got your head around the impact of Jesus Christ on the Greco-Roman world and therefore the Western world, you're not an informed Westerner. Uh, The impact is so vast, even as an intellectual exercise, to know a little about Jesus is very helpful. Uh, We know that uh, recently Jesus was declared to be the most influential figure in world history. This wasn't a couple of Christians who got together and prayed about it. Uh, This is a couple of information scientists who uh, both were not Christian, uh, got together and worked out an algorithm by which they could assess the relative impact of about a thousand figures from world history, from Aristotle to Einstein. And they fed the names in and the various data and the computer spat out the name Jesus of Nazareth. On a range of factors, he is clearly the most influential figure of uh, world history. And if you want to read the details, it's in the Cambridge University Press volume, Who's Bigger, published in 2013. Professor Stephen Skierna, who's an information scientist who was behind this, uh, was quite embarrassed at the result. And uh, he did some uh, mainstream media interviews in which he says, I don't know what explains it. I wasn't expecting it. Almost he was saying, I'm sorry. Um, uh, But uh, he he then said, uh, perhaps we can say that Jesus is the biggest meme in world history. Those of you who know about memes on the internet, he means an idea that somehow took off. And yet the history of Jesus, despite his massive impact, is... Uh, doubted and queried and uh, argued over to a great degree. The National Geographic TV channel uh, some years ago put out a documentary uh, called The Gospel of Judas in which they uh, almost claimed, at least gave the impression, that a gospel had been found that was written by Judas. And they kept on using the word authentic. This is an authentic Uh, manuscript. All they meant is that it is an authentic copy of a late second century forgery in the name of Judas. (laughs) And if you listen closely and squint, uh, they sort of cover themselves that that is what they're saying. But the the use of the word authentic uh, gave a lot of people a lot of confusion. Did Judas really leave a gospel? No, he didn't. And no scholar on earth thinks he did. Not to be outdone, the Discovery Channel uh, put out their own documentary, The Lost Tomb of Jesus. They spent millions of dollars on this, and uh, they uh, uh, researched a ossuary, that is a burial box that Jews used, placed the bones of the loved one in the burial box, and often wrote the name uh, of the loved one that's in the box. And uh, they uncovered this tomb in Talpiot in South Jerusalem. And uh, what do you know? There's an ossuary with the name Jesus. Jesus. And so the whole documentary was about, could this be the tomb of Jesus? Which would be real worry uh, for Orthodox Christianity, since this Jesus was still in the box, right? Um, His remains. They didn't quite let slip that it was a totally different tomb from the one the Gospels describe. It was in the wrong place. Uh, It uh, had about 20 other people in the tomb as well. Uh, but anyway, uh, or f- for that matter, that, uh, that Jesus was the sixth most popular boy's name based on the database we have of Palestinian names from, from antiquity. But, you know, if you spend enough money on, on, uh, on documentaries, you can make anything look pretty good. The new atheists of our day, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, uh, Michel Onfray, uh, best-selling authors, actually give the impression we don't know anything about Jesus, and actually he may not even have existed which would be a great surprise, uh, given that he's also meant to have been the most influential figure in world history. (laughs) So we're left with this wild speculation about uh, the figure of Jesus. At the one end of the spectrum, he's the most influential figure. At the other, maybe he didn't even live. In this context, what I want to do with you this evening, in a rapid-fire way, skimming across the surface, is give you seven things everyone should know about Jesus. The skeptic and the believer. Things you ought to have in your back pocket to know about the secular study of Jesus. And here's my promise to you tonight. I'm not just going to say stuff that I can get away with in the safe environments of Charleston in uh, St. Philip's Church. 
I'm going to talk about stuff that is agreed upon in ancient history and classics departments all around the world. That's where I've spent most of my academic career, in ancient history departments. I now teach in a secular university. I'm only going to say the stuff that is agreed upon by the majority of scholars. That means I have to leave out some stuff that I genuinely believe, although I'll refer to it. But what I want to do is give you seven things that are agreed upon in mainstream secular study of Jesus. Ready? Number one. Non-Christian sources provide a basic outline of Jesus' life. Uh, in class at Sydney University, we spend uh, four hours on the 11 non-Christian references to Jesus in uh, antiquity. I'm not going to do anything like that today. I'm simply going to say the two most significant of the 11 non-Christian references to Jesus are Tacitus, the greatest of Rome's chroniclers, from whom we get almost all of our information uh, about the emperors. If you know anything about Caligula, uh, Nero, uh, Galba, Otho Vitellius, th this comes from uh, Tacitus. But he also mentions Jesus in passing in these interesting words. Christians derive their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out afresh not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. <laughs> Hey, he's not exactly a fan of Jesus, but places Jesus in the right time, the right place, executed in the right uh, fashion. We also have Josephus, a first century Jewish writer uh, who refers to Jesus as a simple wise man, a doer of uh, powerful deeds, a teacher who is uh, condemned uh, by Pontius Pilate, crucified, and so on. In another passage, Josephus also refers to the brother of Jesus who was executed in the year 62. We can date Josephus' reference very precisely the year 62. Uh, in other words, Josephus tells us something we would not have known from the New Testament. Last we heard, Jesus, the brother of Jesus, uh, James, brother of Jesus, was alive and well in Jerusalem. That's where the New Testament leaves off. Uh, but in, uh, uh, in Josephus tells us that in the year 62, the brother-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest uh, that had arranged uh, Jesus' execution, his brother-in-law, uh, Ananus, arranged for the execution of Jesus' brother, uh, James. And uh, Josephus, this non-Christian, refers to it. My point is the consensus of professional scholars today is that the broad outline of Jesus, not everything to do with Jesus, but the broad outline of Jesus is historically verifiable. And if you're in any doubt about this, go to the two greatest uh, compendiums of secular ancient knowledge in the world today, in the English language anyway, they are the Cambridge Ancient History, Volume 10, and the Oxford Classical Dictionary, a mere 1,800-word uh, uh, volume, that brings together the state of scholarship on things classical, ancient Greek and Roman. And in the Cambridge Ancient History, you'll see a whole section on the birth of Christianity, the first few pages of which outline what the historian, the secular historian, knows about Jesus, and they leave zero doubt, absolutely no doubt, that the figure, Jesus, the, the, the teacher who was known as a healer, whatever explains that, uh, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and started disciples, was declared Messiah, etc., uh, is historically verifiable. Same with the Oxford Classical Dictionary. This is a shortcut to find out what secular scholars think, and they leave no doubt about the actual existence of this figure that we're we're talking about. I was so confident of this that in a rush of blood to the head some years ago, I published an article in our national broadcaster website, the ABC, saying that I'll eat a page of my Bible if anyone can find just one professor of classics or ancient history in any university in the world who argues Jesus didn't live. I punched it out there, Twitter went mad, I had atheists all night on Twitter saying, we're going to make you eat your whole Bible, etc. And um, they, uh, they started to offer names, started to offer names of professors of poetry, I kid you not, professors of psychology, of philosophy, of English literature, of German language. Not one professor of classics or ancient history in any university in the world was offered up. My Bible is safe. <laughs> I've since discovered there is a small atheist group in Australia that is still looking. <laughs> and their intention is when they find a professor of ancient history or classics who argues Jesus didn't live, they're going to burst into my office unannounced with a camera crew and make me eat my page of the Bible. Now, I, I wasn't meant to find out that that's what they're planning, so, uh, planning, so I've prepared my speech already and uh, I'll do it straight to camera as I, I don't know, chop up Matthew chapter 1. That seems um, poetic in some way. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and probably eat it in a way that I wouldn't be able to taste uh, on Vegemite toast. I don't think that's a great plan. 
If you've never tried Vegemite toast, well, the Lord be with you. <laughs> but contrast that with the claim of Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, who is no fool. A full professor at Oxford University, in, uh, well, he was first in zoology, and then he was the professor for the public understanding of science. But he says in his book, a serious, if not widely held, historical case can be made that Jesus never lived at all, as has been made by Professor G.A. Wells of London University, which sounds very impressive. London University is a great school. And if there were a professor of ancient history or classics there that thought Jesus didn't live, that would be a kind of counter to what I'm saying. Except G.A. Wells was professor, professor of German language at the London University. And he wrote a popular book 25 years ago uh, saying he didn't think Jesus lived. But he's just a professor of German language. Now, I've got all the respect in the world for people who speak German, but that doesn't make you an expert on a historical figure. In any case, the year after The God Delusion came out, a second edition of G.A. Wells' book came out where he said, I was probably wrong to say Jesus didn't live. My point is, through non-Christian references, we have what, what you might call as close to historical certainty that the figure, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, lived. But actually, the non-Christian sources are not the main sources at all. The thing that may puzzle you is in secular ancient history circles, the main sources for the life of Jesus that are studied are actually the New Testament documents. Uh, secular historians don't place the New Testament documents in a separate category called religious literature. They just treat them like normal first century human literature because they are at least that. We, we at least know they were written in the first century. And the, so they're human literature. So they apply the same rules of historical study uh, to uh, the New Testament that they would to Josephus or Pliny or whatever. And here is my second point. One of the reasons secular ancient historians and classicists treat the New Testament so seriously is that the New Testament is the best attested text of classical antiquity. This is not something I, I'm hoping just to get away with at St. Philip's tonight. This could be said in any classics department or ancient history department in the world, and no one would raise an eyebrow because everyone knows the New Testament is the most widely attested text uh, from all of classical antiquity. I want to give you some comparisons. Tacitus, whom we've already talked about, is known to us from two part-complete manuscripts. That is, we have two ancient copies of uh, Tacitus, the main source for Imperial Rome. The main source for Imperial Rome. Just two part-complete uh, copies, that's it. Virgil's Aeneid is often regarded as the most well-attested text in uh, Latin from the ancient world. And uh, Virgil's Aeneid is a rollicking great big epic poem in multiple books. Not quite as long as the New Testament, about half the length of the New Testament. And we know it from three complete manuscripts from ancient times, seven part-complete manuscripts. And when I say part-complete, don't think a little tiny fragment. Think uh, of maybe 200 pages. That would be only a part-complete uh, manuscript. And we have 20 fragments. These are just random pieces of paper with written on the front and written on the back. And that's called a fragment. And that's as good as it gets in the Latin literature of the time of Jesus. Here is the New Testament data. We have four ancient complete manuscripts of the New Testament, okay, from, from different uh, places around the Roman world. Four complete from ancient times. But where it gets really interesting is we have 340 part complete manuscripts. And again, when I say part complete, I mean all four Gospels in one manuscript. That's called one part complete manuscript. Or eight of Paul's letters in a, in a series of pages, in a series of 84 pages. Uh, that would be considered a part manuscript. Yeah? I mean, we have 340 of them. And when we include fragments, these are single pages written on back and front of different parts of uh, uh, the Gospels and, and the rest of the New Testament, we have well over, and I'm being super conservative here, well over 3,000 fragments. What do fragments look like? They look like this. This is me uh, playing in Oxford last year with the oldest fragment of James, chapter 3, written on back and front. And there's uh, John, chapter 18 and 19, uh, a, a manuscript that can be dated to within about 30 years of the writing of John's Gospel. That's what they look like. But the point is, the New Testament is so well attested. And the reason this is so important is because from the huge number of manuscripts we have, we can have a very high degree of confidence that what was originally written has been preserved. See, if you only had two copies of something and they differed from one another, what do you do? 
How do you know where the variation, if they differ slightly, how do you know which has got the right reading and which, which doesn't? If you have three or four or five, it's getting a bit easier. I'm telling you, if you have 340 to compare and thousands of individual pages to compare, you can gain deep confidence of what was originally written. And that's the importance of it, and this is partly why scholars take the New Testament seriously. Thirdly, the New Testament offers early evidence for Jesus. Early evidence for Jesus. People sometimes say, weren't the Gospels written hundreds of years after Jesus, so how could we ever trust them? The answer is no, they were written relatively close in time uh, to Jesus. And I want to give you a sense of what historians are normally working with. Uh, Alexander the Great is a figure many of us uh, know from antiquity, the, the greatest Greek, or Macedonian if we have to be strict. Uh, our first extant a historian to offer biographical details is Polybius, who writes about 120 years after Alexander the Great. But actually, our best source is Arian, who writes uh, 400 years after Alexander the Great. You might think, 400 years, that's way too long to be trusted. But Arian is using sources in his day that are now lost to us, but when he wrote his account of Alexander the Great, he had them in front of him, and he's worked them into his uh, into his text. So historians actually have a high degree of confidence that Arian is our best account of Alexander the Great. What about Emperor Tiberius, who ruled when Jesus did his ministry? Emperor Tiberius, uh, emperor from AD 14 to 37. How do we know about him? Our best source for, Tac uh, for Tiberius is Tacitus, who writes about 80 years after Tiberius is dead. And that is our best source to know about the emperor who ruled at the same time that Jesus lived. That's normal in antiquity, in the study of ancient history. What about Jesus and the New Testament? Well, he dies around the year 30. There's debate about which exact year. Uh, but our earliest New Testament text is from 20 years only after uh, his death. And the last New Testament text, if we go with the majority view of scholars, is uh, John's Gospel. And uh, that's uh, probably penned around the year 90. So that's 60 years after Jesus' death. But can you see even the latest text in the New Testament, John's Gospel, is still closer in time to Jesus than is our best source for the emperor of the same time. The best source for the emperor of the same time is 80 years after Emperor Tiberius. The latest source of the New Testament is 60. Personally, I think John's Gospel is much earlier than that, but uh, I, I'm a, in a minority there. I just want to tell you what the majority view is. More than that, we have a, 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 a fragment of a statement that we can date to within months, maybe a couple of years of the events themselves. This is uh, a, a little creedal statement tucked away in a document called 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, and I got to handle the earliest fragment of this in the Chester Beatty Library uh, 10 years ago now when I was uh, slim and good-looking. This glass frame is the earliest example of Christian oral tradition. Here, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of a fixed summary of the Christian faith, which he passed on to them years earlier, and which he himself had received shortly after his conversion. Mainstream scholars date this summary to within months of Jesus' death. Okay, he's just showing off now. So the point is that that even atheist scholars, okay, even atheist scholars like Robert Funk and Gerd Ludemann will say that that fragment can be dated to within months, maybe a few years of the events themselves, putting beyond doubt that the core of the Jesus story was already being told substantially uh, within, within months of the events uh, themselves. Uh, this puts the New Testament on a level that is surprisingly strong. I'm not saying we can prove everything. Please don't hear me, uh, don't hear an exaggerated version of what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is partly why historians take the New Testament seriously. Well, there are three general things about the study of Jesus. I want to now drill down to four specific things, four specific uh, uh, things that are agreed upon by ancient historians who are studying the life of Jesus in an entirely secular manner. It's important to say that there are so many portraits of Jesus in the modern world and we can tend to project onto Jesus our favorite one. So uh, some of you may have seen Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, hands up if you've seen that. Okay, okay, yeah, cool. Um, sometimes people are embarrassed to say they've seen this film because Jesus presented here is a sexually repressed, misunderstood and confused prophet figure. Right, that's who Martin Scorsese's projected uh, onto the figure of Jesus. 
Uh, obviously, I reckon many more people have seen The Passion of the Christ. Hands up if you've seen this. Okay, look, much more. Uh, Mel Gibson's film. Uh, this Jesus is the Jesus who's a sacrificial lamb. You know, if, if you don't mind Jesus beaten up for 90 minutes, that's your version of Jesus. That's pretty much what it is, right? That, and that's his vision of Jesus, simply the sacrificial one. There's almost nothing about his teaching and, and life. And then there's the kind of left-wing Jesus who holds little lammies and wouldn't hurt a fly. And I'm pretty scared to do this, but maybe the right-wing Jesus, on the other hand. (laughs) I've probably committed some terrible faux pas in that point. But anyway, uh, then there's Deepak Chopra's Jesus. Deepak Chopra is the guru to the stars. Oprah Winfrey loves to interview him. Uh, he's, a, he's an Indian guru, and he's written a book on Jesus called The Third Jesus. The first Jesus was the historical one. He says we know nothing about that. The second Jesus is the church one. He says that's rubbish. The third Jesus is his Jesus. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> this Jesus, the third Jesus, Deepak Chopra's Jesus, is basically an enlarged Indian guru. <laughs> he's like Deepak Chopra, only a little bit better. <laughs> and you get the sense from all of this that there is... There is a a temptation with a figure like Jesus, who is iconic, that we project our favorite self onto him. He must be like me. I quite like me, so he's probably like like me. That's what we do. But what I want to do is I want to offer you just four of maybe 12 or 13 that we could, if I I had more time uh, and there were more interests. I want to give you just four of the many that we could. uh, uh, Portraits of Jesus that that, um, are both... Um, personally compelling, but for tonight, I really want to emphasize, they are also uh, agreed upon by secular scholars studying Jesus. Okay, my fourth point then, my first portrait of Jesus, accepted very widely in scholarship, is Jesus the teacher. I hardly needed to say that. If we walked out on the street of Charleston and say, what do you know of Jesus? Uh, Didn't he teach really nice things? People like the Jesus, the teacher, don't they? They love it. And the number of times Jesus is addressed as teacher in the Gospels, over 30 times he's addressed as teacher. Hardly any Christian today calls him teacher. You don't don't start your prayers uh, going, oh, dear teacher. No, you don't. It's sort of dropped out of our vocabulary, uh, you know, completely. It's Lord, it's Savior, and, and obviously that's where the emphasis needs to be. But sometimes we can overlook that he really was a teacher with a vast body of uh, teachings uh, to offer this world. There's uh, many passages I could quote here, but here's a typical statement in the Gospels. Again, crowds of uh, people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. The classic study in academic circles of Jesus as teacher is by Rainer Reisner, a top German scholar who published an academic book simply titled Jesus as Teacher. Uh, that uh, was, is really kind of the best scholarship even today uh, on this theme of how did Jesus fit in with the rabbis of antiquity and what was his style and what were his methods and so on. It's a big field of study in scholarship. Another interesting thing you may not know is Edwin Judge, who's the founder of the Macquarie University Ancient History Department um, uh, and, and one of the leading Augustan scholars, uh, Augustus scholars, not Augustine the saint, uh, Augustus the first emperor, and uh, in the world. He's a classical historian, Roman historian of great note, and he turned his attention to the earliest churches of the first century and made, a, made the case years ago now that if you were a pagan, a Greek or Roman in the ancient world, and you walked into a church, your first thought would be, I've walked not into a cult or a religious environment, I've walked into a school formed around one teacher with other teachers who were meant to teach me about the teacher. And he lays out the evidence that actually Christianity was perceived to be first a school, not uh, a religious uh, program. Such is the emphasis of Jesus uh, as teacher. Now, there are two equal and opposite mistakes contemporary people make when they think about Jesus as teacher. One is made by the people of general society. The other is made by the church. The one made by people of general society is to so emphasize Jesus as teacher that we don't want to think about him as savior or lord. And we meet that all the time. If you're a believer and you've bumped into people who aren't quite sure what to make of Jesus, they at least want to say he was a teacher. We like what Jesus said as a teacher. 
They emphasize it so much that they neglect all the other stuff. The equal and opposite error is the one Christians make, and that is we so emphasize Jesus as Savior and Lord that we forget that a profound part of the portrait in the Gospels is that he is a teacher with a vast body of teaching he expects us to learn. Jesus, the teacher. Um, it's hard to sum up uh, Jesus' teaching, but I, I might say uh, that this statement stands as the kind of pinnacle of his, at least his ethical teaching. And there's something really powerful in this uh, statement that's worth uh, understanding. Love your enemies, Luke 6. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That, to my mind, is the most sublime collection of ethical teachings ever spoken. Now, some people say, but didn't Confucius say something like the golden rule that Jesus gives there, do unto others as you would have them do to you? Didn't I hear or read on Wikipedia that uh, Confucius said that? Well, sort of. Confucius put it this way. Do not inflict on others what you yourself would not wish done to you. Can you see the difference between that and do to others as you would have them do to you? I think I want to call Confucius' statement the silver rule and Jesus the golden rule. The first is a passive, don't harm others if you don't want to be harmed. Yeah? Just live and let live. Whereas Jesus uh, is teaching, do the good to others you would like to be done to you. It's give and give. Not live and let live, give and give. That's pretty much the difference between deciding not to punch my enemy in the nose and deciding to build my enemy a hospital. Don't do the harm to others you don't want done to yourself. Do to others what you would like done to you. And, but I want you to notice that what undergirds Jesus' vision of this ethical life is not just an arbitrary be nice to people, it's the mercy of God. Do you see that? The climactic statement there, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. For Jesus, to show love and compassion and mercy and even toward enemies is exactly like what the Father is like. That was his teaching. God so loves those who are even opposed to him that Christians animated by that love, love those who are even opposed to them. Not a pure moralism, but a profound theology. The logic of his teaching is, love is what is most real in the universe. So the life of love is the most authentic life, a life animated by reality. So much more could be said about Jesus as teacher, but what I've just told you would be accepted by the vast majority of secular experts on the life of Jesus. Let me pivot uh, with my fifth point to a portrait of Jesus that might sound like it's getting a bit theological now. Jesus as healer? Hang on, that's, that's a bit funny. That's, that, that involves miracles. Historians can't deal with miracles, can they? Well, the debate about whether miracles are possible or not has resulted in a kind of stalemate. Not even a draw, a begrudging stalemate. So philosophers um, would run the argument like this. If I hold that the laws of nature define the limits of what is possible in the universe, that no mind or lawgiver exists behind the laws, then miracles can never be seen as rational. And no amount of evidence could ever point to a supernatural event. If you don't believe there's anything behind the laws of nature, all you got is the laws of nature, no miracles. But what if I hold that the laws of nature do not define the limits of what is possible in the universe, that the laws themselves point to a mind or lawgiver behind the laws? Then miracles can be seen as rational when there is good evidence pointing in that direction. And the evidence with regard to Jesus is pretty spooky. Let me put it like that. See, if the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, only appeared in the latest gospel, let's just say Matthew, Mark, Luke, no reference to Jesus' healing. There was no reference to Jesus the healer in James, nothing in Paul, right? Just in John's gospel at the end, you can be sure the secular historian will say that is a late accumulating legend. 
The fact that it doesn't appear in the early sources and only in the late sources, we can dismiss it. Right? And that would be a pretty valid historical principle. The problem is, it appears everywhere in the sources, and including in our earliest uh, sources. The uh, data about um, uh, the healings of Jesus appear right across the sources. 13 references in the Gospel of Mark, four in a source called Q, now embedded in the New Testament, five in a source called L, two in M, seven in SQ. I'm sorry if they sound like weird names, but these are the kind of secular way of uh, breaking up the sources. Then the healings in Jesus' name in 2 Corinthians and in the letter of James, all of those sources are regarded as not copied from one another. And then we have a reference uh, to Jesus as healer in the non-Christian text I referred to earlier, uh, Josephus, who refers to him doing baffling deeds. So what do historians do with this? Here's an interesting quotation from Paula Fredrickson of Boston University, uh, also part-time at the Hebrew University, not a Christian, avowedly not a Christian, but she happens to be an expert on these things. And she, uh, in her chapter on Jesus' healer, starts very sheepishly like this. Did Jesus perform miracles? Here I, as a historian, have to weigh the testimony of tradition against what I think is possible in principle. I do not believe that God occasionally suspends the operation of what Hume, that is the Scottish philosopher David Hume, calls natural law. What I think Jesus might possibly have done, in other words, must conform to what I think is possible. You might think, you might think she's going to conclude that Jesus didn't do anything that looks like miracles because she doesn't think miracles happened, Jesus didn't do miracles, but actually she doesn't do that at all. She assesses all of the evidence that we have in the Gospels and so on and weighs it up against the evidence that we have for, uh, for other healers in the same time and she actually concludes Jesus did. And I'll give you a quote of what she says in a moment, but let me just point out that the, the two best comparisons to Jesus as a miracle worker from the ancient world are these. Rabbi Honey the Circle Drawer. I won't tell you how he got that really cool name, um, but it, it was to do with him drawing a circle, obviously. Um, but he dies about 65 BC, and he's meant to have performed a miracle that was recorded in two sources, but look at the dates of the sources. The first source we have for him is AD 90. He dies 65 BC, we've got to wait till AD 90. I've never been good at maths, but I think that's like 155 years. Anyone want to dispute that? All right, great. Uh, before we get the first reference, the second reference to him is AD 200. And that's all the sources that we have for Rabbi Honi's miracle. What about from the pagan world? Apollonius of Tyana is meant to have performed miracles. He dies around the year 100. Our only source for his life, for his biography of doing miracles, our only source was written in the year 220. That's 120 years after Apollonius is, is dead. We have one single source. Now you compare that with Jesus the miracle worker and it looks like this. Honey dies, you've got to wait 150 years for one source. By 250 years, you've got a second. With uh, Hanina, don't worry about him. Apollonius, um, I mean he was, he was very good, but still. Um, Apollonius, uh, we have just one source in total. One ancient writing that refers to, and it was written 120 years after, Jesus, after, after Apollonius is dead. Now look at Jesus. We have three sources within 20 years. We have eight sources within 60 years. They're separate sources. And this is why even someone like Paula Fredrickson, who doesn't believe miracles can happen, thinks Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. And here's what she says. So to answer my question, yes, I think that Jesus probably did perform deeds that contemporaries viewed as miracles. She's being very careful with her language. She's not saying she now suddenly believes Jesus did do miracles. What is she saying? She's saying he did things others thought were miracles. Whatever explains that. Then she says, those I have least trouble imagining his working are healings and exorcisms. Let me zip forward to a really interesting feature of the miracles the healings. Most scholars agree that Jesus had a wide reputation in his day for healing people and that he himself explained that healing as a little sign of the future kingdom. Jews believed the kingdom would come and give sight to the blind, raise the dead, heal the body, bring justice to the world and his healings were a little microcosm of the future kingdom. And the two passages that this is based on are Matthew 12 and, and Luke 11, where Jesus says that his miracle working 
are indeed evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon you. That his healings are down payments, deposits of the future kingdom. Here's a very nerdy German scholar, uh, Gerd Tyson, um, putting this in a very scholarly way, but you'll see how the secular scholar approaches this. Jesus combines two conceptual worlds which had never been combined in this way before. The apocalyptic expectation of universal salvation in the future and the episodic realization of salvation in the present through miracles. Nowhere else do we find a charismatic miracle worker whose miraculous deeds are meant to be the end of an old world and the beginning of a new one. This puts a tremendous emphasis on the miracles and it is unhistorical to relativize their significance for the historical Jesus. The present thus becomes a time of salvation in microcosm. Sorry that's technical language, but what he is saying is Jesus thought his miracles were like the preview of a, of a cinema film coming. Little examples of the dead being raised, sight given to the blind, pointers to the kingdom, a preview of the coming kingdom. And actually, that's how uh, ancient Christians generally interpreted Jesus' healings. They didn't think that this was justification for miracle working in general. They thought it was an indication of what Christians should be on about in the present, trying to heal people. Uh, they started hospitals as, as a result of this. Um, for the sake of time, I won't tell you the story of Fabiola of Rome, but she started a hospital. And it was out of this tradition in early Christianity. They still believed in miracles, don't, don't misunderstand me, but they um, actually believed the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, were little signs of what God would do in the future. So let's get busy doing that now with our limited resources. If we can't say, get up and walk, let's build them a hospital. It's the same thing. The Jesus the Healer portrait had a massive influence uh, on Western culture. Uh, there's so much more fun to deal with there, but let me move to my sixth, penultimate uh, portrait of Jesus. And this is going to win me no friends, um, Jesus as judge. Jesus as judge. Uh, I don't know if you were just in, uh, in, in there for the Lord's Supper, uh, but we heard a cracking sermon, didn't we? Sorry, that means a good sermon, okay? <laughs> Cracking, it's good, it's a great compliment. Cracking sermon, where there were several references to the, to the judgment to come, the axes at the root and all that stuff. Well, Jesus preached judgment. Now, I know the church has made a lot of mistakes here, sometimes thumping the pulpit, almost with a smile on the face as it preached the judgment of God. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a truth at the heart, a truth that Jesus himself proclaimed about the coming judgment. Let me just show you a very brief uh, clip uh, from uh, an older documentary that I made some years ago for Australian TV uh, that uh, speaks of this uh, judgment, hopefully in a, um, uh, an understandable way. The Mount of Beatitudes in Galilee, a location that resounded to some of Jesus' most ominous statements. Many of us are familiar with the good news Jesus announced here. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. But there was a flip side that isn't so popular. At the heart of Jesus' vision was an idea straight out of the Old Testament. The kingdom of God was coming. That kingdom would establish an era of justice and love and would sweep away everything that was contrary to God's purposes. The good news of the kingdom was therefore bad news for those who opposed it. The evidence that Jesus, like John the Baptist before him, warned of God's impending judgment is overwhelming. More than 30 passages from the earliest gospel sources record Jesus speaking on judgment. As cliched as it may sound, Jesus said God was coming to judge the wicked. And at the top of his list were the self-righteous and the hypocrites. Jesus said, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and all your herbs, but you overlook justice and the love of God. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the best seat in the synagogues and the way people greet you in the marketplace. Woe to you, religious lawyers as well, for you load people up with burdens that are hard to carry, but you yourself will not lift one finger to bear the load. 
The word woe may sound quaint, but in the original Aramaic, it meant disaster. God was about to ruin the hypocritical religious leaders. But Jesus didn't direct his warnings only at the religious elite who would sit here in the so-called seat of Moses. He believed the rank and file of the towns and villages around him were also in grave danger. Chorazin was a well-to-do township in Jesus' day. Its buildings, constructed with black basalt, covered almost five hectares. And in the very centre was Chorazin's intricately carved synagogue, a monument to the town's respect for religious tradition. Two separate Gospels record Jesus pronouncing a woe against this and other nearby towns. Woe to you, Chorazin, he said. If the miracles done here had been performed in the pagan cities down the road, they would have turned back to God years ago. And when the judgment of God falls on the world, he added, those pagans will fare better than you. It was very strong stuff, and I can only imagine the reaction. The theme of Jesus' judge is judged by secular historians to be historically verified. And it's not one of the portraits of Jesus we like to uh, ponder very much, but it is uh, clearly part of the original portrait of Jesus. Let me uh, pivot to a theme that may seem the contradiction of Jesus as judge. But actually, I think they are meant to see, be seen side by side. This is Jesus as friend. That is, the friend of sinners. Those you might have thought were first in line for the judgment of God. The Gospels are replete with this theme. Jesus was called friend of sinners. And you'll find, if you dip into the academic literature, that this is a huge field of study in the study of the historical Jesus. The texts are many. Uh, I'll just throw out these two from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Or Matthew 11, Jesus said, the Son of Man, that's himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It's striking to think the historical Jesus was criticized as the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. And although that word, sinner, has been misused by the church, such that if you go out to the streets of Charleston tonight and walk up to someone and say, what do you think of sinner? It's like a swear word, or it's just a word of mockery. They, they don't, uh, it doesn't have any power anymore. But in Jesus' day, the word sinner was a profound insult, and Jesus was known as the friend of them. Here is a text um, from about uh, 50 years before Jesus. It's not a biblical text, but it's a thing called the Psalms of Solomon, a Jewish text written in Jerusalem by Pharisees just before the time of Jesus gives you an idea of how they used the term sinner. Ready? Strap your seatbelt on. The sinner stumbles and curses his life. The destruction of the sinner is forever. He will not be remembered when God looks after the righteous, but the righteous shall pursue the sinners and overtake them. See, O Lord, and raise up for your people their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. That's what the, the Messiah was meant to do. So you can see how crazy it was that Jesus was called friend of the sinners when the messianic job description was to do something rather different. Here is um, a text, a legal text, from a generation or two after Jesus that gives you a sense of how tax collectors and various sinners were judged so, uh, so dramatically that even household contact with them made you impure. Listen to this language. Concerning tax collectors who enter your house, their house is unclean, rich, ritually and spiritually speaking. Concerning thieves who enter your house, only the place trodden by the, by the thieves is unclean. In other words, right, thieves aren't as bad as tax collectors, right? 
But if there is a Gentile with them, there's a non-Jew, everything is unclean. Your pots, your pans, your carpets, your everything is unclean. In Jesus' day, contact with sinners was highly regulated and it was thought that if I sat down with a sinner, their ritual impurity was like an infection that I caught. That was the doctrine. Jesus seems to have reversed it and thought that his holiness and love was the counteracting force to their sin. So he went dining with sinners. The Gospels are replete with these references to him finding the sinner of the town and saying, I'm coming to your house today. Thereby making himself unclean, at least by the traditions of the day. But he thought what he was doing was bringing sinners into the orbit of God's grace. That's what he was doing, reversing the normal pattern. I will never forget interviewing uh, this man, Geza Vermesh. Uh, may not be a name many of you know, but he was uh, a professor of uh, Jewish studies at Oxford University for decades and one of the revered ancient scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls and of the life of Jesus. He wrote eight books, eight historical books on, on Jesus. He was a world authority, not a Christian. But when I went to interview him, we were going to interview him about Jesus' uh, doctrine of love of enemy. And I, and I was really excited to, to get the great gaze of Amesh on camera. And as soon as I met him, he, he, met him, he said to me, John, you realize Jesus got his love ethic from Judaism. You know that, don't you? I said, yes, Professor Vermesh. You know, I, I've read the Bible and, uh, and I've read your books. Um, so yes, I do that. And as soon as I conceded that point, he said, I'll never forget this, but Jesus radicalized that ethic so that love of neighbor now meant love of lepers, love of enemies, love of sinners. To be told by the world's leading authority on Jewish, ancient Jewish history that Jesus radicalized the ethic of love in his kindness towards sinners was powerful. Let me bring this to a close. Of course, this theme of the love of sinners climaxes in his death. Those of us who just took the Lord's Supper know that he believed, he taught that his death was the blood poured out for our forgiveness of sins. This is the ultimate love of the enemy on the cross. This is the ultimate friend of sinners who actually gave his life for others. I want to close by just saying to you how I first learned this. Um, I was saying to Burrell, who was driving me around earlier, um, he asked how I uh, came to know about Christianity. I was raised in a home that had no Christianity. I'd never been inside a church before I was 16. We never said grace around the table. But the one sort of religious thing that Aussies get is a half-hour lesson in school, state school, half-hour lesson, where, the, where volunteers from the local church or synagogue or mosque or, or Sikh temple or whatever can come up to school and for half an hour once a week in a volunteer capacity take students for lessons in that religion. And most of us go to that, what's called scripture class, because the alternative was half an hour doing homework supervised by a real teacher. <laughs> so I, I went to scripture. I never listened to the little old ladies from the local Anglican church who would come up once a week, and they'd teach me, and I was 15, and I, and I remember thinking of them, why would I, why would, you know, maybe when I'm that old, I'll think about God, because then, you know, you're going to meet him pretty soon, so it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, no offense, I now see it differently. I'm just saying how I thought as a 15-year-old. And so I never listened. But then I got this woman called Glenda. Mrs. Weldon, Glenda Weldon, came into class when I was in year nine. I was 15, going on 16. And she lit up the room with her joy, with her intelligence. And I was used to asking the question that made all the teachers look stupid and made me look good and made the class laugh, Right? And so I put up my hand to ask the smart aleck question. She had a brilliant reply that had the class laughing at me. That's not how it was meant to be. I tried it one more time. She had a brilliant answer. I shut up and listened. And listened. And then she did a very daring thing that would be just about illegal nowadays. 
she invited the class to her home on Friday afternoon for hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. Which is a little bit unfair with 15-year-old boys, don't you think? <laughs> she said, I can tell you have questions, and I'm just going to make mountains of hamburgers and milkshakes and scones on Friday afternoon. There's my address. She wrote it up on the whiteboard. You come, don't come. I don't mind, but I'd love to see you. Weeks went by. We never went. We later found out she had been making hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones in preparation and then throwing it away. One afternoon, we turned up. A pack. And she invited us in. Hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones in her beautiful lounge room in a beautiful part of Sydney by the beach, Baron Beach. And we sat in her gorgeous lounges and ate her hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones to that point that only 15-year-old boys know, so full I couldn't get up out of the couch. <laughs> At which point she brought out the Bible. And, and, I, and I remember thinking that maybe she's a witch. <laughs> and, and that I was about to, you know, have a spell cast over me. She didn't. She said, have you got questions? I had questions and questions and questions and questions. She answered them one by one. She realized that we knew nothing. None of the lads in her lounge room had ever been to church. So she said, come back next week. We'll do, we'll do something together. If you, if you want to, I'll make hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. We came back the next Friday, the next Friday, the next Friday for two and a half years on Friday afternoons. You know what she did? She read us the four Gospels. She realized we knew nothing, so you might as well go right to the base. <laughs> Introduce these lads to the man. We were so bad to her. One of us stole her DVD player one day when we were in her lounge room for drug money. The next week when we're there, all she said was, I seem to have lost my DVD player. If any of you hear where it's gone, please let me know. She knew we'd taken it. We all knew who had taken it. It wasn't me, by the way. But she just put up with it. Invited us back, invited us back. I remember one occasion, we were, I'm sorry to say this, blind drunk in a year 10 party. I guess I'm now 16. I'm sort of on the edge of Christianity. I'm really interested, but we're at this party, blind drunk. And one of our mates was so unbelievably drunk, he begged us to take him to our place, not his place, because his dad was a military man, right? And that wouldn't have gone down well. And I said, no way are you coming to my place. We all at midnight thought, hang on, doesn't the scripture teacher just live up the road? <laughs> we knocked on her door at midnight. She lives in a house pretty much like uh, the ones right down on Battery. You know those giant, beautiful beach houses? She's in there. We knock on her door. She, she shows us in. We can tell we've interrupted a posh dinner party. She sees us. She sees Daniel in a desperate state. She says, come in. Come in. Shows us straight past her guests. She goes and gets pajamas from one of her sons. Says, look, throw him in the shower. Put him in pajamas. Throw him in, in the back of the house, the back wing of the house. We'll sort this out. Now, she was a teetotaler. She'd never touched a drop of alcohol in her life. She was always on at us about our drinking. But she didn't bat an eyelid in that moment. Next morning we came, and there she's making bacon and eggs for Daniel, who didn't look like eating anything, but <laughs> she's chatting to him. And... Oh, there's so much more I could say, but I want to say this. When you have a Christian like that in your life, it is the easiest thing in the world to come to believe that the judge of all the earth can actually be your friend. She was a friend to sinners. And she introduced us to the friend of sinners. And it absolutely changed our life. Five of us became Christians. Three of us are now Anglican clergymen. She died a year uh, or so ago. Well, I guess it's coming up to two years now, actually. I stayed in touch with her through all those years. I took my own kids to her home several times, and she would make hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones for them. <laughs> but I've dedicated um, my most recent book to her because I finished the book. I finished the book the week she died. And the, 
the dedication goes like this. I, I just want to give you a sense of her Jesus and how she introduced us to Jesus. In memory of Glenda Natasha Weldon, who put up with this godless 16-year-old and his scoundrel mates every Friday afternoon after school as we ate her hamburgers and scones, debated her God and lost, listened to her read and explain the four Gospels, took advantage of her generosity, caused her frequent headaches before eventually finding ourselves captivated by the story she told about the man from Nazareth. The historical Jesus is the living Jesus who can change your life and offer you grace. And given that I'm sure most of you know it, I just want to end by saying this. If you have come to know the friend of sinners, please, please be a friend to sinners. Thank you. Thank you.